0: Peace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 61. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for my regular listeners. Thank you for my new listeners. I appreciate you all, and I want to wish everyone today a happy Easter, or also, um, as one of my friends taught me, a happy Resurrection Weekend. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I do not have a bonus. Uh, I wanted to try to incorporate a bonus today for Easter, but it became too complicated um, with copyright and all of that. So decided to skip the bonus this year and I may do it next year or you know the year after. We've got so many encyclopedias to read. Uh, we've got plenty of opportunities, <laughs> Lord willing, plenty of opportunities to do an Easter bonus. So don't worry. One of these years, we will do an Easter bonus. But today is April 17th, and we do have episode 61. We've got all 30 words. Uh, that was another thing. I was going to try to limit it to 10, and I was like, I just couldn't work it to where we could do it correctly. So we're going to stick with all 30 words. So I appreciate you listening this week. Uh, if you can't listen today, I hope that you listen sometime through the week. I know today is the Lord's Day, so, and it also Easter, which both. <laughs> um, but thank you again for listening. Before we get started um, on our words, uh, we do have a quote of the month. Uh, Sidney Smith, who was an English cleric and journalist, he lived from 1771 to 1845. And if you remember, at the beginning of this month, uh, I explained why I chose Sydney Smith. Um, that's because this quote helped me through a really difficult situation during my hike. Uh, if I had not remembered this quote, I probably would have stood uh, shivering on the, uh, on the bank on the other side and I would probably still be there to this day. No, I wouldn't still be there, uh, there are some warmer days, but his quote is, the fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank thinking of the cold and the danger but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. So let me just repeat that. Um, and I hope that this quote helps you through any difficult situations too. So, the fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank thinking of the cold and the danger, but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. And again, that was by Sydney Smith. And our first set of five entries today are alt scheller comma, joseph alexander Alturus, altus aladel and alum so we will start uh, for any of you new listeners out there the encyclopedia challenge you may be wondering what is this you haven't explained it and you'll be right i, I forgot to explain it at the beginning like i normally do the encyclopedia challenge is where i read the encyclopedia for, to you I read from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. That is our main source. And we will hop into the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 every now and then. Uh, entries number two and three will be in the Encyclopedia Americana. And then we'll be in the Ameri- the Encyclopedia Americana again. About, looks like three more times after that. But I will let you know. I'll let you know when we jump in. and And if you are new... Uh, you do not have to have an encyclopedia. Uh, you don't have to own one. You don't have to go on Wikipedia uh, to enjoy this podcast. All you have to do is be willing to listen and desire to learn new words. Uh, and if you enjoy listening to someone mispronounce over half the words, you've come to the right podcast. Um, so so I, I appreciate you, uh, you regular listeners, sticking with me, even though I mispronounce a lot of the words. But So let's go on. Uh, to uh, number one, Alt Scheller, comma Joseph Alexander, and we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for him. Uh, so Joseph Alexander, Alt Scheller, he was an American author and journalist. You know, I love the American authors because uh, I am a, a writer. He was born in Three Springs, Connecticut. No, not Connecticut, Kentucky. I'm sorry, Three Springs, Kentucky. I don't know why I said Connecticut. It's K Y. Kentucky. I know Kentucky. (laughs) Um, He lived... uh, He was born 1862, April 29th. He studied at Liberty College in Glasgow, Kentucky, and at Vanderbilt University, and has been connected with the Louisville Courier Journal and the New York World. So it sounds like he's still alive at the time of this writing. um, Because it says has been connected with... Hold on, Okay the Louisville Courier-Journal, and the New York World. His novels are chiefly on American historical subjects, The Son of Saratogua, In Hostile Red, A Soldier of Manhattan, The Last Rebel, Encircling Camps, The Herald of the West, My Captive, The Wilderness Road, Before the Dawn, Guthrie of the Times, and The Candidate in 1905. So at the time of this, he was still alive. And entries number two and three, we are going to be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And uh, we have Alturas. If I can find my place. Ah, here it is. Alturas, which is a city in California, seat of Madoc County, is situated on the Pitt River at the altitude of about 4,460 feet. It is on federal highways and is served by the Southern Pacific Railroad. It has wood products, factories, and is a trade center for the surrounding agricultural area. It is also the district headquarters for the U.S. Forest Service and the California Division of Fish and Game. Settlement dates from 1870 when three brothers named Doris took up adjoining claims and constructed a bridge across the Pitt River. There a small community developed which was called Doris Bridge and designated the county seat. In 1876, the name was changed to Altarus, and incorporation as a city came in 1901. The population in 1940 was 2,090 and then it increased a little bit in 1950 to 2,819. Okay, in entry number three we have Altus which was a city in Oklahoma is located in Jackson County at an altitude of 1,410 feet 147 miles southwest of Oklahoma City It is on federal and state highways and is served by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, the St. Louis, San Francisco, and the Missouri-Kansas-Texas railroads. It is the trade center of a rich agricultural county, the main products of which are cotton, grain, and livestock. In the city are cotton gins, cottonseed oil mills, grain elevators, railroad shops, flour mills, packing houses, bottling works, and factories that produce brooms and other wooden products. Altus has a public library. Government is of the mayor council type, and the city owns the electric incinerator and sewage treatment plants and the waterworks. Population in 1940, 8,593, and in 1950, 9,735. And for entries number four and five, we go to back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And I forgot to mention, um, if you want to know how these are spelled, uh, any any of the past entries, um, or if you missed any of the podcasts, the past ones, or if you want to know how any of them are spelled, just go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and for this one, this is Season 1, Episode 61. And it'll be all the way to the bottom, so just scroll all the way down. Uh, but if you've missed any, there are links uh, for the past podcasts, and there's also Um, You can get bonuses as well, so if you want to listen to any of the past bonuses, you can do that too. But again, that website is theoaktreejourneys.com. It is in the description below. Number four is a ludel, ludel, which is a noun, and that is a a pearl. (laughs) I'm adding letters here. A pear-shaped glass or earthen pot open at both ends so that several could be fitted in series. It resembled an alabek and was used in subliming metals by the old chemists. And I love it when the 1909, I know I've said this before to you, (laughs) my regular listeners, um, but whenever the 1909 uses old English or or old or back in the olden days, (laughs) whatever, to describe something, I just have to laugh because 1909, for us, was so, so far away. Um, So I just, I get a good kick out of that. So number five, alum, noun, a white saline substance used in medicine and dyeing, a double sulfate of potash and alumina. In chemistry, several other salts of similar constitution are also called alums. Alumed, imbued or mixed with alum, alumina, noun, or alumine, noun, the clay, loam, or other substance from which alum is obtained. Pure alumina consists of oxygen and the new metal now called aluminum. Aluminum form, oh and we will get to aluminum. That'll be entry number 10 actually. Aluminum form formed like alumina, aluminophorus, containing alum, aluminous, of or relating to alum, aluminite, a mineral of a silver or yellowish white color, aluminum, noun or aluminium, noun. The metallic base of alumina, as a metal now manufactured to a considerable extent, alum root, two different species of American plants possessing astringent properties, alum stone, a mineral of a white, grayish, or reddish color from which much of the best alum is procured. And with that, let's go to break. Before we move on to our next set of five entries, I did want to mention a few little things about Easter. I was looking online at Britannica.com, and I found that a rabbit or bunny, because as you you parents know, you're going to have to play the Easter bunny uh, today, So, or maybe you already did yesterday. Um, I'm, I'm playing it, too. I made all these Easter baskets. I did it last year, too, um, but I made Easter baskets for... Um, some of my friends children and as well as the children at church but uh we celebrate the rabbit or bunny um but it's not just uh the bunny um there are other places that have other animals uh such as the cuckoo in switzerland the fox in westphalia and it looks like that's all they have listed But if you want to learn uh, more about uh, Easter uh, without having to wait for me next year, uh, just some little fun little facts, I would suggest going to www.britannica.com forward slash topic forward slash Easter dash holiday. The link is in the description below. I just thought it was pretty cool that that the cuckoo and the fox uh, were in other areas and the bunny's just not everywhere. Uh, If you uh, ever watched one of the kids' movies, uh, which the name eludes me right now, um, but it's about the holidays, the different holidays, the Easter bunnies from Australia. So the big old giant Australian Easter Bunny, and I won't do, do an accent, um, but I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, it doesn't say if Australia celebrates with an Easter Bunny or not, but j- just imagine that. Just Just imagine for a second telling your children hey the cuckoo is going to bring bringing your eggs or the fox is going to hide your eggs which I think the fox is pretty cool uh, I could see I could see that see a fox hiding the eggs and a, and a cuckoo too okay so let's move on to our next set of five entries we have a loom again alum bog alumina alumina and aluminum as promised aluminum <laughs> And we are strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for these next five entries. So we have alum, white saline substance with a Swedish astringent taste, a double salt composed of potassium sulfate and aluminum sulfate, KAL, apostrophe so 4 twelve 2.12H2O. It crystallizes in octahedrons or in cubes. Alum is soluble in eighteen times its weight of cold water and in its own weight of hot water. The solution thus obtained is strongly acid to color test papers. When heated, the crystals melt in their water of crystallization, and when the water is completely driven off by heat, there is left a spongy white mass called burnt alum or anhydrous alum. Alum is much used as a mordant in dyeing also in preparation of leather from skins and medicine as an astringent and the manufacture of size for paper and for many other purposes, including the preparation of certain brands of baking powder. And um, speaking of baking powder, I usually search for baking powder without the alum. Um, And I I believe they they just call it aluminum now. So I, I go out of my way to search for baking powder without that in it. Such powders should not be, see, such powders should not be used. See, if I just waited and read that next sentence, um, it is prepared artificially from alum shell, shell or schist, which consists mainly of clay, aluminum, silicate, iron pyrites, pyrites, iron disulfide, and coaly or bituminous matter. When the shell is roasted or exposed to the atmosphere, sulfates of iron and aluminum are formed. These are dissolved out with water, the solution mixed with potassium sulfate or chloride and allowed to crystallize. The product is purified by one or more recrystallizations. The term alum is also applied to a class of salts, constituted like the one described above, but containing any alkali metal, ammonia, or a basic substituted ammonia, such as methylamin. Moreover, the aluminum may be replaced by an equivalent quantity of certain Trevalent metals such as chromium or iron. The resulting compounds resemble potassium alum closely in crystalline form and solubility and have names indicating their composition. Thus, NH4CR'SO42.12H2O is ammonium chrome alum. So there we go. Everything you want to know about alum. And don't buy baking powder with alum or aluminum in it. Uh, even in 1909, they knew that was not good. <laughs> All right, so number seven, Alum Bog, Garden of the Lady Alum or Beauty of the Soul. Ooh, that's nice. A domain about four miles from city of Lucknow, India, near the Kanpur Road. It is comprised several buildings, including a palace, a mosque, and an uh, imanbara or private temple bounded by a beautiful garden in the middle of a park and the park enclosed by a wall with corner towers. In 1857, it was converted by the rebels into a fort. In September, Altram, Havlach, and Neil crossed the Ganges from Kalnpur, marched rapidly towards Lucknow, and captured the Alumbagh on the way. About 300 soldiers were left at the palace with four guns, a number of sick, wounded, and 4,000 native camp followers. Under Colonel M- Entire, while the three generals proceeded with their main force to Lucknow, where for two months they were shut in by the rebel hordes. At the end of November, Sir Colin Campbell relieved both Lucknow and the Illumbog, leaving Sir James Outram with 3,500 men to hold the Illumbog, then the only spot in the whole province of Ald in the hands of the British. Sir James was attacked in 1858, January 12th, by an armed rabble of 30,000 men. These he completely defeated, they attacked him again with 20,000 men February 21st when his small force was weakened by the absence of a detachment and were again effectually repulsed. In the next month, Sir Colin Campbell reconquered Lucknow and relieved the garrison at the alum Bog. Okay, and number eight, Alumina. The most abundant of earths, the oxide of the metal aluminum, the formula being Al2O3. It occurs in nature abundantly in combination with silica associated with other bases. The most familiar of its native compounds is felspar, a silicate of alumina, and peltish K2O7AL2026SiO2. This is one of the cons- constituents of granite and of several other indigenous rocks. Igneous rocks. Certain varieties of these, by exposure to the atmosphere, become completely disintegrated, passing from the state of hard solid rock, such as we are accustomed to see in building granite, into soft, crumbling, earthy masses. It is the felspar which undergoes the change, and it appears to be owing to the action of rain water charged with carbonic acid, which dissolves the water. I'm sorry. Which dissolves the potash and some of the silica of the felspar, leaving the excess of silica and the alumina still united. By such disintegration, the clays of arable soils are produced. Clay consists of silica and alumina in chemical combination. When pure, pure, clay is quite white, as in porcelain, porcelain clay derived from colorless feldspar. More frequently, clay is red owing to the presence of oxide of iron, which I've got lots of red clay mud here, or black from the diffusion through it of vegetable matter. Alumina is not fusible by forge or furnace heat, but it melts before the oxyhydrogen blowpipe into a clear globule, possessing great hardness. It occurs in nature in a similar state. The more coarsely crystallized specimens form the emery, which is used for polishing. The transparent crystals, when of a blue color, owing to a trace of metallic oxide, constitute the sapphire, and when red, the ruby. Alumina, in common with other... Ces- Quioxides is a feeble base. Almost all the salts which it forms from the acids have a sour taste and an acid action on coloring matter. I wonder who they're getting to taste these things. The oxide or aluminum hydroxide, AL-OH3, is readily formed by adding ammonia water to a solution of an aluminum salt. It easily dissolves in acids forming aluminum salts and in alkalines, Yielding aluminates as Al parentheses ONA3. It is prepared on a large scale for use in the preparation of aluminum, which we will get to momentarily. And uh, number nine is aluminite. So al- aluminite is a mineral having the composition of a hydrous aluminum sulfate, which is Al2O3.SO39H2O. Occurring in white rinniform concretions in beds of clay in Germany, England, and other European countries. It is opaque, of earthy luster and fracture is soft and light. And number 10, aluminum. And that, that's spelled two different ways. Um, it's spelled the way we, we usually spell it, or aluminium. So it's aluminum or aluminium which will be on the website. I just have to make a note. I forgot to put aluminum on there. All right, so done. So that way it's, it's there on the website. One of the metals in clay, feldspar, slate, and many other minerals. It was discovered by Waller in 1828. In 1855, the French chemist de Bell showed that aluminum could be prepared on a relatively large scale and in a compact form by the action of sodium on aluminum chloride. At present, it is prepared by passing an electric current through a mixture of common salt, alumina, and creolite, sodium aluminum fluoride, which is Na3AlF6. At first, the mixture fuses, the object of adding the salt being to facilitate this, then the aluminum materials are decomposed, the metal collecting on the bottom of the furnace and the oxygen of the alumina, forming carbon monoxide with the carbon electrodes. These latter resemble our lamp rods. From time to time, more alumina is added so that the process is continuous. As the result of this method of manufacturing of cheap electricity, the price of aluminum in Germany in 1900 was about 20 cents per pound, whereas in 1855 it was about... Okay, get this. So you can go into any grocery store now and just just grab a roll of aluminum, right? But in 1855, and it doesn't cost that much money. I mean, it depends on the brand. You know, you want to check your brand, but So remember, in 1900, it was $0.20 per pound. In 1855, it was $267. $267. Just let that sink in for just a second. In this country, the prices are usually higher because there is no competition. Under the most favorable circumstances, the cost of production could be reduced to about $0.04 per pound. So, wow. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on. I'm just, I'm kind of stunned there. Okay. Aluminum is a white metal, somewhat resembling silver, but possessing a bluish hue, which reminds one of zinc. It is very malleable and ductile. In tenacity, it approaches iron, and it takes a high polish. It fuses at about 700 degrees Celsius and can be then cast in molds into ignods. Exposed to dry or moist air, it is unaltered and does not oxidize, as do lead, and zinc. Neither cold nor hot water has any action upon it. Sulfurated hydrogen, the gas which so readily tarnishes the silver in households, does not act on aluminum, which is found to preserve its appearance under all ordinary circumstances as perfectly as gold. When cast into molds, it is a soft metal like pure silver and has a density of 2.56. But when hammered or rolled, it becomes as hard as iron and its density increases to 2.67. It is therefore a very light metal, being lighter than glass, and only one-fourth as heavy as silver. Aluminum is very sonorous, and when a rod or small bell made of it is struck, it gives out a very sweet, clear ringing sound. Aluminum forms, with copper, several light, very hard white alloys. Also a yellow alloy, which, though much lighter than gold, is very similar to it in color. This gold-like alloy, ordinary aluminum bronze, contains 5-10% to of aluminum, is of great strength and has hitherto been much more used for manufacturing purposes than aluminum alone. It is much used for watch chains, pencil cases, and other ornamental articles. More lately, it has been made into such articles as table plate and carriage mountings. It can be made with a tensile strength equal to that of steel and has certain advantages for field guns. The addition of a few parts per cent of aluminum to common brass greatly increases the tenacity of the latter and its resistance to corrosion. An alloy of l- aluminum and tin is used for optical instruments, and from another of aluminum and silver, called Tears Argent, excellent spoons and forks are made. Another alloy, termed Magnalium, consists of aluminum with 10-25% to 25% of magnesium. It is very hard, lighter than aluminum, and is used for mirrors and reflectors. Aluminum containing a very little of sodium easily corrodes in the presence of a small quantity of iron, renders the aluminum brittle and unsuited for use. Hence, clay cannot be employed for the preparation of aluminum. For chemical purposes, it constitutes a valuable reducing agent. One of the most interesting purposes to which it has been put put is the Goldschmidt welding process. When a mixture of powdered aluminum and ferric oxide dry iron rust is ignited, such intense heat is developed that the alumina and iron which are formed run like water. The molten mass is now allow, allowed to come into contact with the ends of a rail or other object, and they soften enough to weld readily. The use of other oxides, such as those of chromium or magn- magnanese, in place of that of iron, yields these metals also in a state of practical purity. In addition to the above purposes, aluminum is used generally where strength and lightness are essential. It is employed as a paint because of its stability in air, for electric cables, because of its lightness, and in manufacture of kitchen utensils, because it is attacked, but slowly by foods, and the products are not injurious in small amount, as is the case where brass or copper vessels are in question. For information concerning the working of aluminum and other technical points, consult J. W. Richards, Aluminum, Its Properties, Metallurgy and Alloys, Philadelphia, eighteen ninety. C. N. A. Tizier, La Aluminium, et Les Elkins, Paris, 1858, Hunt, Langley, and Hall, The Properties of Aluminum, New York, 1890. So there we go. Uh, Everything you wanted to know about the early 1900s aluminum. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your break. I had to get a few sips of hot tea, although it's lukewarm now (laughs) instead of hot and uh, our next set of five entries are alumnus, alum root, alunite, aluno, comma, nicolo or nicolo of Fuligno, allerd or Allred, comma, of Beverly, Yorkshire. So we are strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 11 is alumnus, noun, pupil of a school, university, etc., specifically a graduate. The feminine version is alumna, and the plural is alumni, and the female version has the ligature, the uh, A and E, squished together for the plural, which that's actually pretty cool. And number 12 is alumroot. Name of two plants, natives of the United States, very different from each other, but agreeing in the remarkable astringency of their roots, which are medicinally used. One of these plants is ger- Geranium maculatum C. geranium. The root contains more tannin than kino does. The tincture of, is of use in sore throat and ulcerations of the mouth, and is also administered in various diseases. The property of astringency belongs in an inferior degree to some other species of geranium, and of the kindred genera erodium and pelagonium, the other American plant to which the name is given is Hetera Americana, a plant of the natural order saxifragia, an order in which also astringency is a prevalent property. Okay. Yeah, the uh, sorry, the R is missing in prevalence, So <laughs> figure that one out. Okay, the genus Chera has the calyx five cleft, the petals undivided, five stamens, and the styles remarkably long. H. Americana is everywhere covered with a clammy down. The leaves are roundish, lobed, and toothed. The pedun- pedun- uh, peduncles dichotomous and straggling. The root is a powerful styptic and is used to form a wash for wounds and obstinate ulcers. So take that obstinate ulcers. And number thirteen, alumite, alum stone, a mineral hydrated potassium aluminum sulfate found as crystals and massive, forming seams in volcanic rocks. Alunogen, Alan- an ore of alumina, known as hair salt or feather alum. Is a frequent efflorescent on the walls of quarries or mines. And they've got three R's in quarries. So I had to double check there. I was like, what? <laughs> so three R's in quarries. Right. And number 14 is Aluno Common Niccolo, or Niccolo Aluno, or Niccolo of Flugno Falug- Aluno. He was born about 1430 in Fluno, one of the earliest of the old Umbrian painters. Some of his pictures were carried off by the French. One, the agony in the garden, remains in the Louvre. There is also a Madonna between two angels from in 1499 to be seen in the parish church of the village of Bastia. Fragments are in existence of an altarpiece for the Cathedral of Assisi. The picture represented a pieta with two angels bearing torches, and according to Vasari, weeping so naturally that, quote, no one could have painted them better, end quote. He is not so remarkable for the originality or fertility of his invention as for his selection of details, warmth of feeling, purity, and devout faith. His earnestness, however, leads him at times into exaggeration. Eh, I like exaggeration. And number 15, Alvred. So I said alert, so his name, his name is pronounced Al- Alvred or Alred of Beverly, Yorkshire. It doesn't say when he was born, but it does say he died around 1128 or 1129. He was an old, here we go, so old English historian. So, wow, so in the mid-1100s, he was considered an old English historian. Think about that one for a second. Of the time time of Henry I, little is known regarding him, but he is said to have been educated at Cambridge and to have greatly distinguished himself by the variety of his learning. It is also stated that he had enriched his mind by travel, both in France and Italy, and that at Rome he became domestic chaplain to Cardinal Othabani. His permanent office, however, appears to have been that of canon and treasurer of the Church of St. John in his native town of Beverly, where he wrote his annals. This work commences with a fabulous period of British history and extends down to the twenty-ninth year of Henry I. It was published at Oxford in 1716 by Thomas Hearn, and is remarkable for various reasons. Its Latin is extremely good and even elegant, while its accuracy, especially in dates, is unusual for the age in which its author lived. He is said, though, it is very doubtful to have written, besides the annals, a work on the liberties or privileges of the Church of St. John of Beverly. The work, however, the work, whoever wrote it, is a translation of Old Saxon documents, charters, etc., relative to that edifice in a still manuscript. He died in 1128 or 1129, which they already said up here. Um, so that is number 15. Before we go to break, I just want to give a shout out to anyone participating in Camp NaNoWriMo. You are over halfway there. Today is the 17th. Uh, there's 30 days in in April, so congratulations! Keep going. You're over halfway there. You've got this. And if you want to participate in Camp NanoRiMo their next go around, which I believe is in July, uh, just visit their website nanorimo.org. The website is in the description uh, below. Uh, so just just head over there if you uh, want to write or are curious about writing or you know, just need to get something done. <laughs> uh, need need some inspiration. I w- I would go there. Um, but again, congratulations to, to all of you who are participating in Camp NaNoWriMo. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your break. My hot tea is now completely cold. It's cold tea. Um, Before I go over the next five entries, just wanted to mention I was invited to a Passover feast. Now... I don't know how many of my listeners out there have uh, participated in Passover feast or have ever gone to a Passover feast. And this was my very first one. So I highly appreciate my friends, uh, my friend for inviting me. Um, her family is amazing. I made new friends, sold a couple of books. We had a great time. There were a lot, lo- lots of prayers. Uh, I love the symbolism. Um, now, when I go to church, we, we celebrate... Uh, the lord's supper or the communion every single week uh, in remembrance of his sacrifice of jesus's sacrifice and i love that um i love doing that. i love that we do that because we're called to do that every week but this was different um there were a lot of traditional things um that were done i'm not i've got a whole packet that i was given which i'm grateful for and i was allowed to keep so thank you for letting me keep it but i'm not going to read Read any of this, but it went through, um, like removing the leaven from the house, washing your hands. A lot of the, the Israelite or the Jewish traditions, um, that symbolized, uh, different things, uh, and it goes into what it symbolizes, uh, like the unleavened bread on the Passover for the Passover feast is to remember, the the haste of which Israel left Egypt. So there's a lot of, um. A lot of Moses, you know, when the plagues during Moses' time and stuff. So it was really, really cool. Had to go. We we got to uh, we got to learn a lot. And I found out that I was pronouncing Yeshua incorrectly. It's Yeshua. So I appreciate that too, because I've only read it. No one around me knows Hebrew that I know of. Um, and if they do know it, shame on you for not correcting me. <laughs> Um, so it's Yeshua, but I've been saying Yeshua and it's, it's Yeshua and and that is Jesus's name. So Jesus the Christ, so Yeshua the Christ. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot, so I'm, I'm glad I got to go and I hope that I get to get to either participate again with them next year or do my own next year. Um, it was really, it was really good. I had to bring my own matzah. I had have never been, but I had a feeling that I needed to bring it. Uh, I had to bring my own matzah because I'm gluten free. Uh, I get rashes; it's nothing serious, so I'm not like throat's not going to close up, knock on matzo. Uh not like it does with other things. But um, that I've eaten, but so I had to bring my own matzah. I'm, I'm so glad I I did because uh, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to participate in that part. But yeah, we, we had a great time. So I am. very grateful that I got to go. But that's not what you're here for. You're not here to listen to me ramble on about what I did over the weekend. Uh, You're here to learn about words. So let's move on. Our next set of five entries are Alva, Alva, Duke of, Alvarado, Alvarado, Pedro de, Alvarez, Don Jose. And all of these are still from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So we have Alba, and it's a village of Stirlingshire in Scotland, seven miles northeast from Stirling. The part of Stirlingshire in which Alba is situated is detached from the rest of the county and enclosed between the counties of Clackmannan and Perth. Alba is a place of great industrial activity, having extensive woolen factories in which the manufacture of shawls and tweeds has superseded the old trade in blankets. The number of looms employed is about 1,100. To the east of the village is a glen named the Silver Glen, where two pits are still to be seen. I wonder if they're still to be seen to this day. Marking the site of old silver mines. The communion cups still in use in the parish church are made of silver derived from these mines. Immediately behind the village is Alva Glen, noted for its picturesque beauty and magnificent waterfall. About a mile to the west of the village is Balcorn Glen, also a very romantic spot. Ooh, So for all of you romance people out there, if if this is still in existence, you should check out Alba in Balcorn Glen. So the population in 1897 was estimated to be about 6,500. And number 17, Alba, Dukov. It just says see Alba. So we've already been to the ALBAs. So if you Super, super curious and want to know, just go to TheOakTreeJourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, do a search, uh, type in A-L-B-A, which is Alba, and you can find which episode that is. I, di- I didn't look to see which episode that's in and which, which number it's in, so so if you want to re- re-hear that, if if you're my regular listener, you can, or if you are new here and you just, you're just curious, you can listen to that as well. And number 18 is Alvarado. Town of Mexico, Department of Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the river Alvarado, 50 miles southeast from Veracruz. The situation close to a lagoon is unhealthy. A bar at the mouth of the river prevents the entrance of vessels of more than 12 or 13 feet draught, but within the bar, the harbor is sheltered from every wind. Great part of the town consists of cane-built cottages, roofed with palm leaves. The river has a course of not much more than 100 miles, but collects the waters of an extensive swampy district. Much rice and cacao are produced in the country around Alvarado. The population is 6,000. And number 19, Alvarado, Pedro de, or Pedro de Alvarado. He was a famous companion of Cortes, born Badajoz in Spanish Estremadura, towards the close of the 15th century. He died in 1541. In 1517 or 1518, he sailed for the New World, and in the same year was dispatched from Cuba by Velasquez, the governor of that island, to explore under the command of Gralva the shores of the American continent. The expedition touched at Acozumel, the Isle of Swallows, and at various places in Yucatan. Ascending also the rivers Tabasco and Baderas, Gralva was so enchanted with the beauty of the country, its fine cultivation, and the numerous traces of advanced civilization that he named it New Spain. Now for the first time the Spaniards heard of the riches of Montezuma and of his vast empire. Alvarado was ordered to return to Cuba and informed Velasquez of the result of the expedition. The sight of the gold which Alvarado brought with him stimulated the covetousness and ambition of Velasquez, who became greatly incensed against Galva, because the latter had not penetrated further into the new region, and on his return to Cuba deprived him of his command. In 1519, in February, Cortes sailed from Havana solely for the purpose of conquest, with eleven ships containing five hundred and eight soldiers and one hundred and nine seamen. Alvarado commanded one of these ships, but a storm separating the fleet, he arrived at the rendezvous, Isle of Swallows, three days earlier than the others. Here, the conquest of Mexico was planned by these intrepid adventurers. He figured, yeah, that should be figured. <laughs> he figured into every conspicuous incident. He was indeed hardly less distinguished than the sagacious Cortes himself, who knew his worth and whom he served with unfaltering zeal and fidelity. While he held the city of Mexico during the absence of his chief, he massacred in the midst of a a great number of Aztec nobles which act is said to have excited the indignation of Cortes but on the other hand it is asserted that the Mexicans had plotted the destruction of the Spaniards and that he had become cognizant of the scheme. So there's always three sides to everything. There's one side which is is, uh, Alvarado's side then there's the Mexican side and then there's the truth somewhere in the middle. In the famous night retreat of 1520, July 1st, he commanded the rear guard. After the conquest of Mexico, he was sent in 1523 at the head of 300-foot, one hundred six sixty horse and four pieces of cannon and a troop of Mexican auxiliaries to subdue the tribes on the coast of the Pacific in the direction of Guatemala. He was completely successful, receiving everywhere the submission of the native chiefs, while the people brought him presents in token of friendship. He now returned to Spain where the emperor Charles V gave him a splendid reception and appointed him governor of Guatemala on departing again for the new world he was accompanied by numerous friends and cavaliers desirous to make their fortune his adventurous spirit soon launched him into new enterprises pizarro and almagro were prosecuting a brilliant career of conquest in south america resolved not to he resolved not to intrude upon their territories he considered the province of quito to be without the limits of these and so embarking with a force of five hundred soldiers two hundred twenty-seven of whom were cavaliers he landed at bahia de los Carrox, near cape san francisco whence he penetrated into the heart of the country crossing the andes by as bold and hazardous a march as it is possible to conceive in the plain of rio Bamba, he was met by some of the troops of pizarro headed by Almagro but instead of disputing by force of his arms his right to the possession of the country in which he found himself he agreed to retire on receiving an indemnity for his arduous undertaking he therefore retired to honduras, honduras and aided the colonists in establishing new settlements among others gracias a dios and san juan de porto de caballos meanwhile pizarro loaded with wealth went back to spain in 1534 and misrepresented the conduct of him to the emperor, but the latter following vindicated himself so successfully that he received the government of Honduras in addition to Guatemala. Don't lie on people. Again he embarked for the New World and pursued his course of discovery and conquest, but in an affray with the Indians upon the coast of Michoahuacan in 1541, he was accidentally killed by his horse falling upon him and crushing him. Ooh. In the same year, an Indonation, accompanied by a frightful tempest, overthrew the walls of the town of San Juan. when his wife and children all perished. Ooh, that is awful. And uh, number 20, Alvarez, Don Jose, or Don Jose Alvarez. Um, This is 1768, April 23rd. Okay, so he was born in 1768. On April 23rd, he died 1827, November 26th. He was born in Priago, province of Cordova, Spain, a Spanish sculptor. During youth, he labored with his father, a stonemason, and when twenty years old, began to study drawing and sculpture in the Academy of Granada. His early essays in sculpture secured for him the patronage of the Bishop of Cordova, and in 1794 he was received into the Academy of San Fernando, where in 1799 he gained the first prize in the first class. Subsequently, he gained the second prize for sculpture in the Institute of Paris and in 1804 increased his celebrity by a plaster model of Ganymede, which proved him a rival of Canova in gracefulness of style. He then attempted greater works in the more severe style and prepared a model for a wounded ecclese which was accidentally broken. Ooh, that stinks. Having removed to Rome, he was employed by Napoleon to design bas-reliefs for the Cornaro Palace on Monte Cavallo, but on account of political changes, his works were not allowed to accompany occupy the places for which they had been destined. Ooh, that's ooh. As a as a writer, that that cuts deep. I feel for him in Rome, where he lived on terms of friendship with Canova and Thorwaldsen. He executed, among other works, his Grupo Colossal de Zaragoza, now in the Royal Museum of Madrid representing a scene in the defense of Saragossa. This work alone is sufficient to establish his fame. Clearness of design, dignified simplicity in execution, trueness to nature, and deep sentiment mark the sculptures of Alvarez, who next to nature and classical antiquity studied the works of Michelangelo. He died in Madrid. And with that, let's go to break. And I need to get some hot tea this time. <laughs> welcome back. I did grab some hot tea. Not sure how long it's going to remain hot, but at least I was able to take a few sips while it was hot. Our next five set of entries, so entries 21 through 25, are Alviri, Alvin Schleben, comma Constantine Vaughan, Alverstone, comma Sir Richard Everard Webster, say that one 20 times fast, and then Alvi, comma Richard Henry, Alvord Benjamin. So we begin with the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and this time we will be switching over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So number 21, Alviri, which is a noun. In anatomy, it's the hollow of the external ear. So if you ever wanted to know what your external ear was called or the hollow of it, it's called an Alviri. Alviri or alveolari, containing sockets, alveolate, divided into cells or pits, honeycombed, alveol, sockets or cells, alveoli, the socket of a tooth, alveolus, a small hollow or cavity, in in natural history a little trough or hollow canal, Alveoli, noun, the cavities of the jawbones in which the teeth are fixed. Alveolites, noun, plural, a genus of corals composed of concentrically arranged tables of short tubes, angularly without and rounded within. Alveus, the bed or channel of a stream, in anatomy, a tube or, t- or canal for a fluid of the body. Alvin, of or from the bowels. And uh my nephews would really like that part. <laughs> and number twenty-two, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of nineteen fifty-six, and we have comma Constantine von or Constantine von alvensleben He was a Prussian army officer, born in Eckenbrun, Saxony, august twenty sixth, eighteen oh nine. He died in Berlin, march twenty eighth, eighteen ninety two. He joined the Prussian Guards in 1827 and won distinction during the campaign against Austria in 1866. On outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 he was given command of the 3rd Army Corps which operated as part of the 2nd German Army. He displayed vigorous leadership at the Battle of Spicheren on August 6th and by his energy and determination contributed greatly to the successes before Metz during August 14th through 18th. Shortly before retirement, in 1873, he was promoted full general of infantry. Okay, and number 23, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. We have Alverstone Commiss Sir Richard Everard Webster. and Or Sir Richard Everard Webster Alverstone. He was a first baron He was British Lord Chief Justice, born 1842, December 22nd. He was educated at King's College, the Charterhouse Schools, and Trinity College, Cambridge. In 1868, he was called to the bar and became QC ten years after. He was appointed Attorney General in 1885, June, in the Conservative government, and in spite of the fact that he never held the position of Solicitor General and did not at the time occupy a seat in Parliament, he was elected for Lauston in the following month and later exchanged his seat for the Isle of Wight, which he continued to represent until his elevation to the House of Lords. Except under the brief Gladstone administration of 1886, the Gladstone Rosebery cabinet of 1892 to 1895, Sir Richard Webster was Attorney General from 1885 to 1899. In 1893, he represented Great Britain in the Bering Sea Arbitration, or Baron i am sorry, Bering Sea Arbitration—and five years later he discharged the same function in the, manner, in, in the matter of the boundary between British Guiana and Venezuela. In 1899, he succeeded Sir Nathaniel Lindley as Master of the Rolls, at the same time being raised to the peerage as Baron Alberstone. In October of the same year, he was elevated to the office of Lord Chief Justice upon the death of Lord Russell of Kilowand. And number 25, and we are still in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. We have Alver, Richard Henry, or Richard Henry Alvey. He was an American jurist, not journalist, but jurist. He was on the jury. Born eighteen twenty six, died 19, He died nineteen o six September fourteenth. He was admitted to the bar in eighteen forty nine. Was a member of the Maryland State Constitutional Convention, Chief Judge of the Fourth Judicial Circuit, and a Judge of the Maryland Court of Appeals in eighteen sixty seven to eighteen eighty three. Chief Justice of the latter court in eighteen eighty three to eighteen ninety three. Became Chief Justice of the Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia in eighteen ninety three and one of the Venezuela Boundary Commissioners in 1896. And that's pretty much all they have to say about him. <laughs> so number 25, Alverd, Benjamin, or Benjamin Albert. He was an American soldier, born Rutland, Vermont, 1813, August 8th, died 1884, October 17th. He received a military education at West Point, and after serving in the Second Seminole War the and in the Mexican War also, was paymaster of the Department of Oregon from 1854 to 1862. He was brigadier general of volunteers from 1862 to 1865, retiring from the service in 1881 with the rank of brigadier general. He published Tingencies of Circles and of Spheres in 1855 and the Interpretation of Imaginary Roots and Questions of Maxima and Minima in 1860. that's pretty cool. And with that, let's go to break. Welcome back. Before we go into the last set of five entries, I just want to remind everyone you have until April 24th to use your 20% off code for my Teespring store. So that is next Sunday. It expires next Sunday. So if you want 20% off of uh, a product at my Teespring store, use Mandy20 by April 24th. And remember, Mother's Day and Father's Day are coming up very quickly. Uh, so for my Teespring store, the link is in the description below. Again, the code is Mandy, so my name M A N D Y two zero, and the code is in the in the description below as well. And remember, it does expire next Sunday. And our last set of five entries are: Albert Comma Clarence Walworth, Albert Comma Henry Elijah, All War. Always, Alwer or misery Machery. M- 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 yeah, Machery. And for our twenty-sixth entry, Albert, comma Clarence Walworth, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of nineteen fifty-six. So Clarence Walworth, Albert. Albert, he was an American historian, born Greenfield, Massachusetts, May twenty-first, eighteen sixty-eight. He died in Diano, Marino, Italy, January 27, 1928. He graduated from Williams College in 1891, and in 1901 he joined the faculty of the University of Illinois, where he served as professor of history from 1913 until 1920. Thereafter, he occupied a like chair at the University of Minnesota until 1923, when he retired to devote himself to historical research. In 1905, he discovered the long-lost records of the old French settlements of Cahokia and Kaskia Kaskia on the Mississippi River. That's pretty neat. The following year, he became general editor of the Illinois Historical Collections, supervising the preparation of 14 volumes of records, and from 1914 until 1923, he edited the Mississippi Valley Historical Review, the Labatt Prize was awarded him for his Mississippi Valley in British Politics in 1917, and other works included the Illinois Country, from 1763 to 1818, and that was in that was published in 1920. And that does it for the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So for the last four entries, we are going to be be in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number twenty-seven. It is Albert, comma, Henry Elijah or Henry Elijah Albert. He was an American soldier born in Greenfield, Massachusetts in 1844, March 11th. He died in 1904. He entered the army in 1862 and had risen to the rank of major in 1865. He was a cavalry captain in the regular army from 1866 to 1872 and chief engineer on General Sheridan's staff from 1868 to 1869. From 1886 to 1888, he was professor of agriculture in the Massachusetts Agricultural College and was president of the Maryland Agricultural College from 1888 to 1892. He was for many years prominent as an authority on agricultural questions. Okay, and number 28, All War. One of the feudatory states of Rajputana, British India, see Rajputs. Okay, and that's all they have to say. <laughs> So it's pretty much as short as the actual word. Number twenty nine, always. And it means exactly what you would think it would mean. Continually forever, also always, chiefly used in poetry. So always without the S is chiefly used in poetry. And we have Alwar or Masheri, a Rajput State of India, so this is number thirty a Rajput state of India under the control of the governor-general's agent for the states of Rajputana, but having a considerable measure of independence between north latitude 27 degrees 14 feet to 28 degrees 13 feet and east longitude 76 degrees 14 feet to 77 degrees 15 feet, about 3,000 square miles. The capital, Alwar, is a small, ill-built town surrounded by a wretched mud wall, some in the early 1900s. And uh, they do use (laughs) words like wretched and and stuff. So, wretched mud wall at the base of a rocky range of quartz and slate, 1,200 feet above the adjacent country and at least 2,100 feet above the sea, 94 miles west-northwest from Agra. The palace of the Roa Raja is a curious square building, having its walls pierced with a great number of small windows and covered with glaring and grotesque paintings. The revenue of the Raja is estimated at about 180,000, I think, pounds. The military force of the state amounts to about 8,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry. The inhabitants who are called Muatis are, sav- are a rude and savage race. Okay. In former times, the Muatis were a predatory tribe and from the 13th to the 15th century carried their raids even to the gates of Delhi. Population in 1901 is was eight hundred twenty eight thousand four hundred eighty seven. Okay, and that was entry number 30. And uh, before I let you head out uh, to enjoy the Easter egg hunts uh, with your, your kids, I just wanted to read um, a Bible verse. I know this is the time when most people do go to church, uh, so I just wanted to read... Uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 5. And actually, we'll start with verse uh, 4. So Isaiah 53, verse 4. And uh, this is from the New King James Version. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now let me go on to verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, thank you so much for listening. Um, and if you are new, I appreciate you tuning in uh, and c- catching up the uh, the encyclopedia challenge. And I hope that you continue to listen. Um, as uh, next week we'll continue our 30 words and, and the week after as long as we can until we get through the entire set of encyclopedias so that is the goal so however long it takes us to get to the through the entire set of encyclopedias lord willing that is what we will do so again i appreciate all of you and i hope everyone has a blessed easter and a blessed week. And before I let you go, let me just remind you of the quote by Sydney Smith. The fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, remember that's worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank thinking of the cold and danger, but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. And with that, I bid you adieu.